What a great day to be talking about a storm. Although this is nothing, is it? We've been through more. Lord, are you going to bring the winds before I'm done here? A couple weeks ago, we dipped into this passage in Mark 4, the end of Mark chapter 4. So if you have Bibles or devices, get there. I said at that point, I wasn't sure if I would return to this passage. I knew it was worth at least, worthy of at least another message that was stirring, and now I'm quite sure it's worthy of at least two. So we buckle in and look at this really infamous passage in Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to the end of the chapter. On that day, that same day that Jesus was teaching these parables, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with them, and a great windstorm arose. Take notice of the word great in this passage. The waves were breaking already into the boat, so that the boat was filling. But Jesus was in the stern of the boat, asleep on a cushion. And they went and woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. This powerful account is recorded not only by Mark, but by Matthew and Luke also. They're fairly similar accounts. Often we get the shortened version in Mark compared to sometimes the, the fuller version that Matthew or Luke records in some of the stories. In this, in this case, Mark gives us actually more. Mark is the only one to quote Jesus speaking to the sea. Peace, be still. And I believe that's significant, maybe somewhat hidden or overlooked in the rest of this powerful account. But is that not a word that we are so desperate to hear into our world today? Peace, be still. As we press in close on this, though I'd, I don't want us to lose sight of the broader message that Mark is showing to us, teaching all who would listen, revealing who Jesus is. He is who he claimed to be. He is the anticipated one, though we receive him as the unexpected one. He is the, the Messiah that has been promised. He is the king of the kingdom. Mark is showing us how difficult that was for just about everyone to grasp and understand. And repeatedly, he shows us even those closest to him, as we see in this passage, still not understanding who he is. His is an upside-down kingdom from our perspective. And that gives us hope. It should, at least, great hope that we, too, can be following Jesus as we are coming to understand him. And that, that's the whole of our life. As we grow in understanding and faith, as we wrestle with doubts and even fears, and as we come to walk in and receive the kingdom of God. Now, a couple weeks ago when I touched on this passage, I said, I believe Mark wants us to see the contrast as he puts the, the parables of Jesus first and then shows us this illustration with the very life of Jesus. 
Here is on display the, the contrast result of hearing and receiving the words of God, the words of the kingdom of God. And those who do not have not let it grow within them. Jesus at peace and calm in the midst of a storm. The disciples still fearful and frantic. There's a contrast of hearing and receiving, letting the word of God dwell within us. Let's enter the boat with Jesus and the disciples today. This Galilean fishing vessel was likely around 25 to 30 feet long. So no mere rowboat, but not a, not a significant vessel or a ship by any means. It likely had relatively low sides, for these were fishermen who cast with nets and needed to draw in the fish. So relatively low sides. And if you can imagine, potentially 13 men in this 25-foot-long boat Although there were other boats, so it's possible they were dispersed, we're not told. But it said he was there with his disciples. Thirteen men in a 25-foot boat, there's no way they were social distancing. I know you were thinking that, right? This seems to be the first thing that pops to mind. But imagine these 13 men in this vessel that already had relatively low sides and potentially the weight that let, let it sit even lower in the water. And I believe that that was likely the reason for their panic. To be sure, a significant storm did come upon that lake that day. Mark records it as a great storm. The word in Greek is one that you all know. It is the word mega. It was a mega storm. And storms did arise quickly upon the Sea of Galilee, as they do today, also known as the Lake of Tiberias. The Lake of Tiberias is 700 feet below sea level making it the lowest freshwater lake in the world. As it sits in the Jordan Valley and the ridges are above it, the temperature difference between the top of the ridge and the surface of the lake can be quite extreme. And if you know anything about weather, that can move the winds pretty quickly. And so winds and storms arose sometimes without any warning. But considering these men, many of them were fishermen on this lake and were accustomed to that, it couldn't have been that surprising to them. I've heard many suppose that this is the, the greatest storm that they had ever experienced. And to be sure, it was, as Mark says, a mega storm. But I wonder if their panic actually arose, not because of the greatness of the storm, but because of the weight in the ship and that the waves were coming over the sides. And with every passing wave, they were sinking lower and there's that moment of no return while they are all trying to bail. I remember a story. We were up north in Wisconsin with one of Catherine's relatives, and we were in a speedboat, and we were actually just drifting and kind of cruising on the lake and enjoying the sunshine. And another wake boat had gone by that was weighted down to create the wake for wakeboarding or for water surfing behind, behind the boat. And as we were cruising, and his small-ish but good-sized, new-ish, nice speedboat with an open bow with maybe six or seven of us in it, took a nosedive under one of those wakes and hundreds of gallons poured in. And then we came up to the next wake and it happened a second time. And the, the panic upon, upon for me, I just was enjoying the, the water and the relief, but the, the panic that was upon the owner of this ship and how to release the water and move and hit the gas to increase and push the water out and come over the next wake. 
was astonishing to me, and I immediately knew something was wrong. And he had grown up on these lakes and said, if we had taken on another wake, we would have sunk. it would have sunk the ship. It would have sunk the boat right to the bottom of the lake. It was that quick of a decision that needed to be made. And while these were likely different scenarios, I believe that's potentially more of what was happening here as more and more these, wa- these waves from the winds are sloshing over the sides. They don't have a motor they can hit the gas on. And they are all bailing to try to just keep that last wave from coming in that could sink them. Well, they weren't all bailing, were they? One was asleep through the storm. And perhaps the primary question isn't how did Jesus possibly sleep through this tempest? But how did he possibly sleep through the panic and the frantic movements of his disciples? And I think to answer either question is vital for our own discipleship in following Jesus, as we must become like him and we are invited to. We certainly can enter the story as the disciples, I think, all too easily. It doesn't maybe take much to make us panic. We make our plans in life. Maybe they're not all that thought through, but we've been doing them often. And it seems to be a good plan. And so many others seem to be making the same kinds of plans. And then something unexpected comes into life. We might call it a storm as a metaphor. Something unexpected, but really shouldn't have been unexpected at all. And we find out that our plans were actually quite risky and tenuous all along. And while we are trying frantically to bail, we have no hope. We cannot stay ahead of the tide, and we wonder if just that next wave that comes is going to be the one to sink us. At least the disciples went and woke Jesus for rescue. Do you wonder how long they were frantically bailing before they went and woke him? Turning to their own strength immediately as a reflex before going to the one who can calm the storms? We often try to accomplish anything we can in our own strength, and it's maybe not until desperation where we cry out to Jesus or to God for help. In Matthew's account of the same event, the disciples cried out, Save us, Lord. Deliver, rescue. This is the word sozo in Greek, which I've referred to a number of times. It's a holistic healing and rescue and deliverance. It's much more than being saved from this world to heaven or saved from the fires of hell. It's a deliverance. It's life. And they said to Jesus, Save us, Lord. Believing he could, it seems. And yet, as we know the rest of the story, they didn't fully believe that he could. And maybe we could say it this way. They believed he could save their lives, but they did not believe he could calm the storm. And both require faith, but they are radically different. I'll say it again, maybe without a backfiring car going by. They believed he could save their lives but they did not believe he could calm the storm. And the faith of the two is radically different. One kind of faith is for someday. The other for is, is for right now. One kind of faith is for some things. The other is for everything. One is more like a life insurance policy, and the other is a living friendship with God. The disciples believed, but not yet, as is a theme in Mark. That's why he highlights the prayer of the father who's in desperation in Mark chapter 9. Lord, I believe. 
help me with my unbelief. I think one of the most real and powerful prayers we see in the Scripture and the one that most of us can easily pray. Which kind of faith do we have? Which kind do we want? Jesus obviously desires to grow in us the latter kind of faith, the one that is for right now, for everything, and depends on a relationship with his very character and nature. This is why he asks, asks the question of them, have you still no faith? That was likely a blow to their pride, wasn't it? I mean, perhaps they had, at this point, started feeling pretty good about themselves. After all, they were the chosen ones, the ones Jesus invited to follow them. They were the ones who left everything to go after him. They were the ones that had now witnessed him miraculously heal dozens, if not hundreds, of people. They've now seen him turn water to wine and perform other other signs that they could not explain, teach with an authority that they had never seen. Of course they had faith. They were still with him. But it wasn't yet the deep-rooted faith that defines who we are. Not merely what we believe. They still needed to grow. And when the pressure of the winds and the waves were against them, what came out was fear, not faith. In Mark's account here, we see the raw emotion in their rebuke or accusation of Jesus. Did you hear that? Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Wow. Two things. First, they address him with the lowest possible title they could have given him at this point. They know he was far more than their teacher. He was their rabbi, the one who had called them. And he was becoming their Lord. And here they address him merely as teacher. And then to say, do you not care? There had been no one on earth who had shown them more love, compassion, favor, and esteem than Jesus. Fear will make us do and say crazy things. So, with some mega irony, Mark shows us, the boat that was filling with water but not yet full makes them afraid. But Jesus calms the sea, ending the filling of the boat, and instead the disciples are filled to the full with fear. And we can totally relate. Have you ever prayed things that sound like this prayer? Jesus, when are you going to wake up? How can you sleep when our world is raging? Do you not care? We just need one word. One touch. We believe. Jesus, wake up. And we can maybe read a story or a passage at times and shake our heads at the faith or lack of faith of the disciples, but at least they were crying out to him. At least they went to him. And at least they didn't hide anything from him. They were not pretending. They brought to him everything. Will we? Are we? The storms of life will come. The winds and the waves will be against us at many times. These pressures and crises reveal what was already there. Just as a pandemic has revealed what was already beneath the surface, the pressure of it has shown us the brokenness within our systems and structures and society, within our relationships, within our community, maybe within us and within our own faith or lack thereof. I'll ask you this. 
Why does steam erupt from a pressure cooker? Obviously, because it's under great pressure. But that's not a complete answer, is it? Because there is liquid within the cooker. That's why steam comes out. Let me say it another way. Why does lava erupt from some mountains and not from others? Because it's under great pressure, to be sure. But that's not a complete answer. A number of years ago, my family got to visit the big island of Hawaii, and Mount Kilauea was erupting as it has been since 1983, the longest continually actively erupting volcano in at least modern times or in our history. And it was especially active that time that we were there. We were able to get within about a half a mile of a lava rift near the ocean that was erupting 200 feet in the air multiple times a minute. It was honestly one of the most incredible things I have ever seen with my own eyes. And I wanted to get closer because I'm an idiot. But they would not let us because they were wise. So doing a little bit of research about the lava and how it could possibly be erupting like that so near to the ocean and not up to the top where I thought that's where lava came from. It turns out that lava is only in parts of our Earth's crust, while the Earth is itself is under the same amount of pressure, and therefore every mountain and every place is under the same amount of pressure. Lava erupts in places because there's lava under the surface. And that's the short of it. I'm sure there's much more, and you can correct me. What's beneath the surface depends and determines what erupts under pressure. What's beneath the surface for us, for these disciples? And the answer may seem like fear, but that's not deep enough. The answer is unbelief. That's what is revealed in the fear and in their question, the unbelief. It wasn't primarily that they were struggling to believe in Jesus. They didn't know who he was. That's their question. Who is this? It wasn't that they were struggling to believe if they, I mean, perhaps it would have helped if they knew who he was, that God had bigger plans for him, to say the least, so therefore being with him on the boat, and there was nothing to fear. They too could have been asleep just the same. Jesus asks them why they were afraid. Yes, they were afraid of the storm, but it is ironic that after the storm is calmed and ceases, there's no more fear from the storm, that's when they have great fear. Three times in this passage, Mark uses that same word, mega. There's a mega storm. Jesus speaks, peace, be still, and there is mega calm, verse 39. But then the disciples, when there's mega calm, are filled with mega fear. That's when they are most afraid. Who is this that has this kind of power and authority? What it reveals is that they were completely ignorant of his true power and true authority as his very nature was on display. This would be like a child who would go right up to a lion in the zoo if they were able because all they see is a big kitty cat. C.S. Lewis uses that as an example in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when little Lucy says to Mr. Beaver as she sees Aslan for the first time, well, is he safe? Wanting to go up to him, I'm sure. And Mr. Beaver is flabbergasted. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. It seems that the disciples do not fully understand the nature of God. And because this surprised them, 
Because it unsettled them so much that they would have mega fear seems to indicate that they had gotten to a place that they thought they had Jesus fairly well figured out. They've got their heads around who this guy is and what he's come to do. And yes, he's doing it in different kinds of ways. But had they been in a posture of humility, knowing that they did not yet know fully who he was, instead of responding with mega fear, they would have responded with mega amazement. And I believe mega joy. As they would have said one to another, he did it again. He did it again. Did you see that, Andrew? I knew he would. Shut up, Peter. No, you didn't. You were shaking in your sandals just like the rest of us. How easily can we stagnate in our faith and apprenticeship to Jesus by simply allowing ourselves to become used to him? Thinking we've got him fairly well figured out. What he will and won't do when he will or won't show up, what he is and is not. And I've been guilty of this so many times. Here's a public confession and repentance. I've built whole philosophies and practices on the confidence that I know who Jesus is. Building philosophies and practices is not a bad thing. But upon confidence that I know exactly who Jesus is will lead me to places where I will be mega fearful that I could possibly have misconceived or preconceived him so poorly. I want to remain in a posture of humility that says, Jesus, I am just, just coming to know you. And Lord, I thank you that I have all eternity in that pursuit to know you more fully. Because I want to respond to you when you show up in new ways, at least from my perspective, and do new things and reveal yourself in greater fullness that I respond with mega amazement and joy, not mega fear. Let's end here today. If that is any kind of resonance for you, and if you can pray anything similar, Lord, help us. Lord, help me a response to the conviction of God's word and the story that is presented is always prayer, which then leads to great mega encouragement. If it's despair or it's shame or it's guilt, that's not of the Lord. <laughs> conviction leads to the encouragement and the hope that God is still at work and Jesus is still revealing himself to us and we are just coming to know him. Next week, I'll press into some of the practices that I think might be helpful. Prayer first, followed by action, followed by practices, or at least hand in hand, as we want to know this kind of peace. Do we want to know the kind of peace that Jesus had and lived with amidst the storms, amidst the persecution? How do we embrace that, receive it, and walk with it? So I think that's worthy of message number two. Let's begin with prayer, ending this message with prayer, but continuing this week with prayer, praying things like this. Jesus, we want to come to you quickly, not in our own strength at the very end, but first. And unlike the disciples, we don't have to wake Jesus up to be sure he is alert, he is ready, and he hears the cries of his people even when we do not sense it. 
Jesus, save us, rescue and deliver us, forgive us for so often taking far too long to come to you, for trying everything in our own strength first and coming to you as a last result. Grow in us not only deep faith in what you can do, but faith that comes from knowing who you are. Continue to amaze us, Jesus. May we never come to stagnate in our faith as if we have you figured out, author and maker of heaven and earth. Help us respond today while we still feel winds and waves against us, pressures beyond our control. Help us respond with mega joy and mega amazement, for you are worthy. Amen.